This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. In October of 2018, a tragedy struck a synagogue in Squirrel Hill, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Paul Kengor's daughters were nearly in the line of fire. Here he is to recount that story. Pray for us, I will call you later. That was a text message that we received from our 16-year-old daughter at 10.16 a.m. on Saturday morning, October 27, 2018. As my wife and I drove toward Pittsburgh Strip District in downtown Pittsburgh. My wife called my daughter immediately. Are you okay? Were you in an accident? In a hushed voice, my daughter explained that she, our second daughter, and three friends, along with an adult friend of ours named Susie, were hiding in their van across the street from the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill section. They were there for a Saturday morning retreat at a house across the street. They had arrived at 9.55 a.m. They had initially stopped the van directly across from the synagogue on Shady Avenue, which would have been straight in the line of fire between the police and the shooter. It's going to be at 5898 Wilkins Avenue, Tree of Life Synagogue. 3480, you They were planning to hop out and walk to the house. Mercifully, the driver, Susie, decided almost on a whim, a gut feel, she later conceded, to find a parking spot so she could walk the girls inside. Just as she moved to a spot a little further away, police cars began flying in. Okay, um, initial reports of an active shooter, one down in the Tree of Life Synagogue Zone 4. As a girl struggled to assess the chaos, the police parked sideways in order to use their vehicles as shields for the shootout. The street was instantly closed off. Susie told the girls not to get out. They all sat on the floor of the van, ducked and listened and prayed and worried. We received that text message about 20 minutes later. Shortly after we talked to her daughter, Susie and the girls made a careful decision to drive a little further away. Susie did a U-turn and went down the street just enough to pull into a driveway that allowed them to put a few houses and buildings of separation between them, the synagogue and the gunfire. After nearly an hour of chaos and confusion, the girls decided to abandon the van and make a run for it. uh, 315 base, we are pinned down by gunfire. He's firing out of the front of the building with an automatic weapon. Copy. Can't get any closer, we're under fire. They dashed across backyards and over fences to meet a relative of Susie who lived down the street. They could hear gunfire in the background. They met Susie's relative in his getaway car. They escaped. They got free. It was a scary day. It was also evil, an act of evil against our beloved Jewish brothers and sisters at a peaceful Saturday worship service. And while my loved ones were okay, the same cannot be said of everyone in that synagogue, 11 of which were murdered. I've since returned to that spot about a half a dozen times since last October 27th. In fact, I'll be there again this Saturday with the girls. It's never the same. Each time I go, I pause to look at the synagogue and say a prayer. 
I've since talked to other parents who had dropped off their girls at the retreat center that Saturday morning. One of them, a dad, marvels at the conversation that he and his wife had had that fateful morning. His wife typically dropped off his daughter and then sat in the car in the drop-off lane at the Tree of Life Synagogue, where she waited and worked on her laptop for a couple of hours. On this morning, though, the dad, again, another strange gut feel, oddly decided that he wanted to drive his daughter to the retreat center. He wasn't sure why, but he just tried to convince his wife to stay at home. He prevailed and talked her into it. She stayed at home. For some strange reason, they made that decision. Had they not, his wife might have been one of the first ones shot that morning. The suspect in the shooting is in custody. We have multiple casualties inside the synagogue. We have three officers who have been shot. And at this time, we have no more information because we are still clearing the building and trying to figure out uh, if, the, if the situation is safe, if there are any more threats inside the building. So that's all we have at this point. They were very lucky. So were we. My wife and I, of course, are so grateful that our loved ones didn't get caught in the crossfire. My kids had only one scrape, one of the girls, from hopping over a fence. And yet I imagine that many of the families of the 11 dead asked why God hadn't spared their loved ones. I agree. That's one of those timeless questions that we all ask. It's a question that believers of all stripes, and the Jewish people in particular, have asked since literally the time of Job. It's a mystery why some leave this world in a violent way, seemingly prematurely, while others seem to stay longer in this valley of tears, and if and when certain people are protected and others are or aren't. I have no answer there, though I know that God is the author of life and God wasn't the one pulling the trigger in that synagogue. The evil that transpired there was not an act of benevolence by a loving God. I also feel confident in saying this, the true tree of life is not an earthly one, but an eternal one. This world, unlike the heavenly paradise we seek, is full of sin and rot. The trees in this world, they decay and they die. Eternal life and perfect bliss are not reachable in this world. They come in the next. Now that might be small consolation, I understand, to the grieving and hurting loved ones of the Tree of Life Synagogue, but honestly, I think it's truly the best that we can say. And we've been listening to Paul Kengor, who teaches at nearby Grove City College. And by the way, that's where our own Robbie Davis went to college, and thus the connection. And what a story he told indeed. And Paul put it so beautifully. Why do some leave this world prematurely at the hands of of a madman and a mass murderer like this while others don't. And I don't think Paul could have put it better, and I don't think there's a better way to put it. It's a mystery. But one thing's for sure, God didn't author uh, that choice that that young person made, that person made shooting all those folks. And then the question becomes, what choice did we make as it relates to stopping them? And in the end, well, we can't put ourselves in God's, in God's mind. And it's a mystery. Paul Kengor's story, his family's story of a tragedy in Pennsylvania that still lives with him today and will live on with him forever. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories. And we tell stories of all kinds on this show about leadership and a lot of stories about our military. And today, our own friend, Doug Ryder, brings us a story about both. Air Force generals cut a wide swath. Fighter pilots, bomber pilots. This general, Vernon Condra, excels in logistics. Only important if your plane needs gas. Logistics in general is not sexy for any warfighter. But like I used to tell my fighter pilot friends, they fell without us, they'll fight a hell of a war in New Mexico. But they won't go any further. Many don't know this, but the United States is the only country that can do the form of logistics called airlift. In the run-up to the Gulf War, the United States Air Force moved the equivalent of Madison, Wisconsin, and all of its contents to Saudi Arabia and back. Airlift is a system, and we literally are the only country that have it. Russia doesn't have it. China doesn't have it. None of our allies have it. They can use our facilities. See, I'm not too concerned about China invading the United States because they can't get here. I never was concerned about Russia invading the United States. Now, you got to be concerned about strategic weapons, rockets, missiles, airplanes flying and dropping bombs. But as far as putting troops on the ground, I was never concerned about it because they don't have the system to do it. You've got to have people, you've got to have airplanes, you have to have on-load equipment, off-load equipment, you've got to have people that know how to refuel, you've got to have refueling bases, you have to have in-route bases, and all of those things have to come together in this 5,000-mile-long pipeline that you're putting in at one end and, and it's coming out the other end sooner or later once you get that 5,000 mile hose fire hydrant filled up now stuff starts flowing through it and but all these bases along the way are check valves that keep it going in the way you want it to go and at the rate you want it to go and it becomes very important that you have to control the flow we had an airplane landing every 10 minutes in Saudi Arabia or someplace in the Mideast during this thing. And we exercise that system on a day-to-day -day basis. There's airlift going on all around the world, all the time. It's just that it really ramps up in something like Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Vern's dad was not a nice man. His coach was a good man and he learned from both. I remember him buying me a baseball glove. It was a cheap little glove. And then he would put me in the front yard and he would throw balls to me as hard as he could and then chastise me because I didn't catch him. And I said, that ain't never gonna happen again. But my coaches in high school, they were the ones that were a father figure. It had to have been sometime in the late 90s. I was at a family reunion and found out that my high school football coach, who was in his 80s, late 80s at that time, was in assisted living. 
and I called him. And I said, Coach Piper, I said, uh, my wife and I are here in town. Would it be all right if we came and visited you? And he said, absolutely. And he was a remarkable man. But I asked him, I said, do you have any idea the impact that you made on those who played for you? And he says, well, maybe a little bit. And here's a man who is in assisted living, but this is in the late mid-90s. I played, I graduated from high school in 1956. He could name every person on my football team, what position they played, knew all the names. And I know he didn't have time to look it up and, and memorize. He just had, he was that kind of a person. But I told him, I said, let me tell you a story. I said, you remember the first day of football practice? What did we do? And he said, well, you, I'd put you one-on-one, -on -one, meaning that you would go against somebody as hard as you could go. And I was a sophomore, and he put me up against a senior, and you went at each other as hard as you could go. And I remember that when just about the point of impact that I turned my back because I didn't want to get hit. And I said, you chewed my ass, and you got all over me and said, now do it again. I was so embarrassed that I said, never again. And I hit that senior, Mark Hartley, as hard as I could hit him. And I said, from that point on, I never did anything halfway in my life. I said, that's the impact that you had on me. That set the stage. Vern grew up in a lumber town. In a sawmill, a green chain moves wood through the mill from one end to the other. It's a hot, brutal kind of work. He grew up there. He didn't want to stay. I wasn't going to work on the green chain. I was going to go to college. When I went to college, if you went to a land-grant college, which Washington State was, Oregon State was, you had to go to two years of ROTC. You had no choice. Everybody, every male had to go to two years of ROTC. I started in the Army my first semester. I didn't really like it, so I said, I want to transfer to the Air Force. And they let me. Did my two years, and I said, I kind of like this. So I applied to go to advanced ROTC. And I was accepted and you take an aptitude test, and it's, I used to say it was eight hours, I don't know how long it took, but it was a long time. I passed everything, but I didn't pass the aptitude for pilot. I passed to be a navigator, but not a pilot. So I did my junior and senior year, and at the end of my senior year, I had enough hours, but not enough in any one subject, because I'd changed majors from pre-med to business, back to biology. So I had to go a fifth year and I did my student teaching and got my secondary degree in education. But I said, I want to take the test over at the end of my senior year. I said, I've got to go another year. So uh, I'd like to take the aptitude test for pilot. And I said, oh, it doesn't do, nothing ever changes. I said, if I'm willing to sit through that test, you've got to give it to everybody who's coming in. So I'm not inconveniencing anybody. It's my time 
and I want to do that. They said, okay. Two things changed. My pilot aptitude went up high enough to be accepted into pilot school. My officership went down, but not low enough to be disqualified. <laughs> so after four years of ROTC, my officership went down, but my pilot aptitude, I, I passed. And I got to go through the flight indoctrination program my fifth year. But I was doing my student teaching in Ephrata. And then I was coming back to school. Now I'm married by this time in college, my fifth year, and have a young son. And at the end in the spring, after you get your training in the flight program, you go up with an FAA instructor uh, to, see if whether, to, to see if you get a license or not. My instructor said, you're not gonna pass. Because he said, you only get to fly on the weekend when you come back from Ephrata. And so you don't get to fly as much as the other guys do. But he says, I'll still recommend you for flight school. So I went up with the inspector, came down. My instructor said, how'd you do? I said, I passed. And he says, the only reason you passed is that you make people think you know what you're doing, even if you don't. I said, well, I passed, I got my license. And from there, I went to flight school. And that's my friend, Vern Condra. Don't tell him what he can or cannot do. That dog won't hunt. And you've been listening to the story of Lieutenant General Vernon Condra, a three-star Air Force retired. And my goodness, you get to think about logistics in an entirely different way and about mentorship and the real visceral impact one person can have that story about that coach and how it changed his life. So many of you out there in the field who are teachers, mentors, the work you're doing is so much more important than you know. And more and more of you who've received this kind of mentorship need to go back and tell the people what it meant to you. Because my goodness, what a shock it must have been to that coach sitting in an assisted living facility saying, yeah, maybe I made a difference because he wasn't sure until... General Condra told him. When we come back, more of the story of this three-star Air Force retired Lieutenant General Vernon Condra here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and to the story of Lieutenant General Vern Condra. Let's pick up with Doug Ryder and the story of the general's early days in uniform. Vern was commissioned as an officer in the United States Air Force. At first, his only job was to fly planes. I was a, a lieutenant. My job was to fly airplanes. Didn't take much to motivate an airplane. Spin it, spark it, spray it, fly it. As an aircraft commander, as a co-pilot, when you're first starting, leadership things are, are not readily apparent. You got things that you need to do and you do them and it's, you don't have time for the other stuff. As he ascended through the ranks, Vern had to learn to lead. Lucky for him, 
he ran into the great World War II ace pilot, Lieutenant General J.T. Robbins. I worked for him for two years, and he was like a father, uh, probably the greatest teacher I've ever had. He uh, was a Texas Aggie. In World War II, he flew P-38s in World War II in New Guinea, had 22 kills. His first three missions, he had seven kills of Japanese fighters. But he was a tall Texan who had more integrity than any officer I've ever met. He would penalize himself. Even if it was legal to do something, he wouldn't do it if he thought it was going to be misconstrued or it would be something that somebody could twist around. And his byword would be, if you can't read about it in Jack Anderson, you better not be doing it. But he was just an absolute epitome of what an officer, quiet, never yelled. Chief of Staff, named to be not mentioned, was a two-star general. Tall gentleman, 6'4". And I saw him one day running down the hall with paperwork in his hand. I mean, literally running. And I looked at General Robbins and I said, is that what general officers do? Run down the hall with paper? And he says, Vern, he says, you do things with dispatch, but always with dignity. And I've never forgotten that. The other thing that absolutely stood out about him was that he was always on time. I planned a trip to the Pacific, probably a 10-day trip, where we went all the way through the Pacific, visiting units, the general was, all the way to Japan and back, and gave arrival time, departure times. In the message to the units, I put arrival time is when he uh, pulls into the chocks. Departure time is when the gear comes up and we will be on time. I have seen him stateside when we went from Scott Air Force Base in Illinois to Altus, Oklahoma, by what, and we were over Oklahoma City. If we were behind because of winds, we put the airplane at red line to try to catch up. If we were ahead, we did 360s so as to not arrive early. He said it's rude to arrive early and catch people unaware, and he said it's poor planning when you arrive late. And he absolutely, if you had an eight o'clock meeting, you started at eight o'clock, and he would shut the door. My favorite story about General Robbins, young fella came through the office and I was the gatekeeper and he wanted to see the general and I said uh, do you mind if I ask why and he said when I was a young airman I was loading bombs at Weathersfield in England and what I was doing I was doing it wrong and General Robbins was then a colonel and the wing commander and he saw me and uh, he demoted me on the spot he says, I'm on my way to Minnesota. I was in St. Louis. I saw in the paper that he was retiring. I drove over here 30 miles out of my way because I would like to tell him that he was the best commander I've ever had. I said, stand by. I went in, relayed the story to the boss, and 
He says, I remember the incident. He said, send him in. And he shut the door and he spent a half hour with him. But I thought that was a great testimony to a leadership that a, that a gentleman would go 30 miles out of his way just to say hello and let him know that he thought he was the best commander he'd ever had. You do things with dispatch, but always with dignity. True leadership demands accountability. True leadership is proactive, not reactive. And Vern learned by watching the great World War II ace, Lieutenant General J.T. Robbins. And it wouldn't be long before he needed those skills himself. When I was a lieutenant colonel and I was an ops officer in a squadron, flying squadron, which is one of the best jobs in the Air Force. Because you're working with crews, you're working with pilots, with flight engineers, loadmasters, navs, co-pilots. You're where the rubber meets the ramp. And I get called into the wing commander's office on a Friday afternoon and asked, how would you like to be the chief of the command post? Well, command post, first of all, has, had always been a terrible job. And it shouldn't have been, because everything goes through the command post. All the flying activities, all the coordination, the loading, the unloading, the putting of crews with airplanes, everything goes through the command post. But for some reason, the command post never got the top people to work. And I had worked in a command post as a captain, just part-time, temporary. And when the wing commander asked me how would I like to be the chief of the command post, because the current chief had gotten fired, I said, you want an honest answer or you want an answer you want to hear? He says, I want an honest answer. I said, I want no part of it. Not only no, but hell no. He says, good, Monday morning, it's yours. And so I spent the next 13 months in the command post. And, and we went from one of the worst to the top command post in the, in the command. But not because of me. I had a senior NCO, senior master sergeant, Ray Ionelli. And he knew more about command posts than anybody. I said, you're going to do the things that we need to do to become the best. And I went to the DO, a colonel. I'm a lieutenant colonel. I said, okay, I'm now in charge of the command post. From now on, any duty officer who comes assigned to the command post will be the number one guy in the flying squadron. No more sending me the, the guys that don't fly. No more sending me the dregs. No more sending people to the command post who can't do anything else that the squadrons want to get rid of. You're going to send only people who can get promoted, and we're going to promote them because they're going to do a good job. This is the most important function you've got on this airfield, so why aren't you manning it with the, with the best people that you got? And why don't they get rewarded? I wasn't afraid to speak my mind, put it that way. And my wife still says she always had a bag packed because she figured I was going to get fired at any minute. Vern doesn't take credit for making his command post number one. He deserved a lot of it. He told his CO the uncomfortable truth. They had been getting it wrong. This at great risk to his career, showing great moral courage. 
And when we come back, we'll continue with the last part of this remarkable story. And what a voice, just a straight shooter and some real honesty, bluntness, and a look into leadership that we don't ordinarily get to look into and from a person who knows a whole lot about it. When we continue more of Lieutenant General Vernon Condra's story, his leadership story, and his life story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and the story of General Vern Condra. Having learned a lot about leadership from great officers, he's now taking on more and more command responsibility himself. Here again is our own Doug Ryder. Vern Condra's success at the command post set the stage for future promotions. When I was ops officer, the commander, I was with him, and there was a young captain or a lieutenant, I don't remember, a young officer. The commander went up to him and said, oh, you must be new to the squadron. He said, no, sir, he says, I've been here three years. Now, I saw the look on that kid's face. Here he's been busting his butt, flying in the squadron for three years, and his commander didn't know who he was. I said, if I ever get to be a commander, that will never happen me. And when I got to be a commander, I had 260 people in my squadron. I could name every single one of them without looking at his name tag. I knew about them. I knew about their family. I knew what they did. How can you ask people to go out and die for you if you don't even know who the hell they are? I mean, you're asking them to be committed. How can they be committed if you don't even know who they are? called leadership. Now you don't do that by sitting in your office. You got to go out and fly. You got to be out on the line with them. You got to be out where they are. But when you're at home, I used to refer to it as management by running around. I didn't ask people to come to my office. I went to theirs. If I wanted something, I'd go to their workplace. Because on the way, I'm going to see a half a dozen others. And they're going to see me. It's not efficient, but it's damn effective. And the other thing is, the most important thing that a person has is his or her name. You need to know who they are. And you can spot phonies They'll say, oh, hi, bub. How you doing, bub? They don't have a clue who the hell you are. But you look them in the eye and call them their name and know something about them. And it takes effort, but it really pays dividends. How can you ask someone to die for you when you don't even know their name? Vern was promoted to wing commander 
at McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington. He was the mayor. I had all responsibility for everything that happened at McCord Air Force Base. 5,000 people, flying mission, civil engineers, everything that happened on, on the base was my responsibility. Great job, great people, great unit. My favorite story, I'd only been here a month. The supply squadron had been selected as the best supply squadron in the United States Air Force. Big ceremony. After it was over with, this little lady in tennis shoes came up to me and she says, Colonel, we're the best supply squadron in the Air Force. I said, yes, ma'am. She says, I've been here 30 years in this supply squadron. She says, I'm gonna tell you one thing. If you're lucky, you'll be here two years. I've been here 30, we're the best there is, don't screw it up. Yes, ma'am, I'll do my very best. And I've never forgotten that. I thought that was one of the greatest comments I've ever heard. General Condra did not screw it up. He kept getting promoted. He ended up going to headquarters of Military Airlift Command as Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990. It was the largest airlift in military history. Verne ended up running the operations of the airlift as a result of the incumbent not being up to the task. He was a micromanager. Well, there were six colonels that ran the crisis action team. And all of this, this whole command post system that's, that's doing all this airlift, making all these coordinations with these units and doing stuff. He was a micromanager and he, had, and he got down into the weeds. And the guys, the colonels, were having to answer minutia instead of taking care of things. And there was a couple of things came up during that couple of weeks at the morning staff meeting that it was obvious that he didn't understand what was going on. It was obvious that the four-star didn't like what was going on. And it finally came to a culmination on the 22nd of August when there was a blow up at the staff meeting. Uh, the four-star just had had enough and he was usually pretty quiet. And uh, I got called into the office and said, what do I do? And I said, about what? About so-and-so. I said, well, even if he's right, after this morning, you're not going to listen because you don't have any faith in him. And he says, you're right. I said, if you're looking for somebody to do this, I know how to do this. I know how the system works. I've been everything from a second lieutenant co-pilot to a first lieutenant aircraft commander to a captain instructor to a flight examiner to a flight commander, an ops officer, a command post chief, squadron commander of an airlift squadron, a wing vice commander, a wing commander, an airlift division commander. So I said, I know how the system works. And I told him, I said, if you're looking for a volunteer, I'll take it. I can do this. He says, good, five o'clock tomorrow morning, it's yours. When I went in the next morning, first thing I did was get the colonels together and told them, you guys run this. You know how to do this. You've got more airlift experience 
than anybody alive. You're the senior colonels in this command. You've done all these things. You know how to do it. You do that. I'll take care of the four-star in the briefings. I'll keep him off your ass. You just go do your job. Don't worry about the old man. You just go do what you got to do. I had a deputy, one star, and I told him the rest of the command is still, they're still training and equipping and things that still have to go on. Take care of it. Don't come to me because I'm not going to have time. That's your bailiwick from now on. You take care of the regular day-to-day -day things that we would normally be doing. That's your job. If you can't do it, I'll get somebody who can. I asked my friend, General Vernon Condra, whether he really wanted that job. Here is his response. It wasn't a question of want. To truly understand General Condra, you need only look behind his desk. Behind my desk, on the wall, was a needlepoint in a frame that was, what, 14 by 18? And it said, most men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Abraham Lincoln. And I thought that was just absolute great way to live. And I believed it so much, I had it on a little piece of paper. I don't know where I cut it out from, but I had it sitting on top of my nameplate holder, just a little tiny one inch by two inch. And my secretary saw that and she needle pointed it for me and hung it on the wall. In the late 1800s, an English baron named Lord Acton was quoted as saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When I think of my friend, General Vernon J. Condra, United States Air Force retired, that is what comes to my mind. Incorruptible, morally courageous, and bound by duty. And a special thanks to Doug Ryder, our friend, and also board member of our nonprofit. And by the way, he spent a lifetime, Doug, placing people as CEOs of companies. And his only job in the end, as he has told me many times, figure out the character of your people, especially those in power. And will they empower people? And will they cheerlead people on and coach them and let them do their jobs or not? Because that's how leaders get in trouble always. That power corrupts them. It's so true what Lincoln said. Most men can handle adversity and stand it. But if you want to test his character, give him power. Smart words to live by. Again, Abraham Lincoln's words. No fool himself. And what a story this was. From the beginning, let's face it, he didn't want to do what his family did, what so many people in the neighborhood did. And that's work at the lumberyard. I wasn't going to work on the green chain. My goodness, so many people don't want to work on the family farm or wherever or whatever. They've got their own destiny, their own calling. And all the way through as he's growing up and going through the ranks, learning how to lead. I mean, when he started, he was just a pilot. And what did he say? I mean, I love the words, spin it, spark it, spray it, and fly it. And that was his total responsibility is just, well, piloting that piece of metal in the air. 
But as he grew older, he had to learn how to do more and shepherd more than himself and the machine he was handling. He had to learn how to lead and shepherd others. That's a whole different skill set, folks. How to respect them, how to listen to them. And in the end, him saying at the end, leading the biggest airlift in history to all those underneath him, you've done this, you know how to do it, I'll take care of the four stars and keep them off your you-know-whats. And that's all you want in a boss, folks. Lieutenant General Vernon Condra's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Tony Mandrich was considered the best offensive line prospect ever during his collegiate career at Michigan State. Legendary college coach Nick Saban, who was an assistant at the time at Michigan State, and who discovered Mandarich, said that he was, quote, probably the most dominant offensive lineman that I have ever been around, end quote. Mandarich entered the NFL as the highest paid offensive lineman in league history. Then, after arriving in Titletown, USA, reality set in. Mandarich's story was immortalized by two Sports Illustrated covers, one hailing him as the Incredible Bulk, heading into the 1989 draft, and then one in 1992 calling him the NFL's incredible bust as his four-year career in Green Bay came to a halting end. Here's Mandrich to share his story. Growing up was actually fantastic for me. Um, I had a a great childhood, uh, great parents, great siblings. And ironically, although we're talking about our American stories, I am Canadian, <laughs> but I've spent most of my years, uh, now 53 years old, most of my life has been uh, spent stateside. And so growing up in Canada, to say that you played street hockey or, you know, on the road, you know, in your neighborhood was a common thing. And, you know, watching a lot of hockey and things like that, a lot of the stereotypes that Americans have, and I think just people have of Canada are true. Um, very liberal country, uh, tons of first generation immigrants, uh, which my parents were. My parents came over in 1955 to escape communism from former Yugoslavia and to start a better life uh, for their family and, and kids. And, and that's basically what they did. So, you know, my childhood was great. Uh, it was just a, it was in the greater Toronto area. We we're a 45-minute drive from Buffalo, three-hour drive from Detroit. So when it came to NFL Sundays, I, I got to see a lot of the Detroit Lions and a lot of the Buffalo Bills. Um, and then when it came to college football, we'd see a lot of the Big Ten schools on TV. But... You know, to sum up my childhood, uh, you know, I would say a very accurate phrase would be, I, I definitely didn't have everything I wanted, but I definitely had everything I needed. Uh, it was all a great experience. And then as you grow up um, into your adolescent years, you start to have dreams. And 
I remember at age 11, which is pretty young, my oldest daughter, right? I mean, my youngest daughter right now is 21. So when I saw her at 11, it was kind of a wake up call for me because you don't realize how young of a person that is when they're that age. And to, when I think about it, it was at 11, I took out a piece of paper and wrote down what I was going to be when I grew up or what I wanted to be when I grow up. And that was to become a professional football player in the NFL and to be to become a professional photographer. You know, for me, the, these things were normal. As I grew older, I, I realized they weren't normal because not everybody did the things that I did. Not everybody took out a piece of paper and did short-term, mid-term, long-term goals. For me, it was like, I don't know why I did that. It, it seemed natural. And then, you know, and then I would, at the end of the three months for the short-term goals, if I'm not reaching those goals, the short-term goals, I need to find out why. And if I don't know why, then I need to reset my short-term goals and reset my midterm goals. Because my long-term ones still might be the end game of making it to the NFL and then becoming a photographer or whatever. Um, I had uh, three years under my belt in Canada of high school football. So by the end of my junior year, uh, it was like, you know, and we're talking 1982, 1983. There wasn't very many American colleges coming up to Canada to recruit potential football players. Yes, there was for hockey, but not so much for football because, you know, high school football and college football and pro football, uh, those pinnacles are all stateside. If you really want to be honest, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If you want to if you if your football is your dream, you got to go stateside. If hockey is your dream, you know, hope you're born in Canada. So it's 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 interesting, and um, I knew that after that third year, uh, both my brother and I knew that we needed to make some kind of a decision that was gonna help me get exposure and some American coaching. And Ohio at that time, where I ended up going for my senior year of high school. You know, Ohio was one of the what they called the big three, one of the big three states for high school football. It was Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida were the three biggest kind of states. So my brother was going to Kent State University at the time in Ohio, in Kent, Ohio. And we were kicking around the idea of me coming down there for my senior year, uh, living with him and he was going into a senior year of college and i was going i would be going into my senior year of high school and for the really the sole purpose of uh getting exposure and getting some american coaching to you know become a better football player you know we talked about it with my parents and you know they they were like if that's what you really really want to do and they knew i wanted to i had been it was my whole life it was uh that's all i talked about and, and you know my brother you know huge kudos to him for you know taking a sacrifice of bringing on your little brother who's in senior in high school and you're and he's a big man on campus as a football player because he was having a, a very good career ended up getting drafted in the first round in the canadian football league so you know he he wanted what was for the greater good um, of his younger brother and kent roosevelt high school had four or five athletes that were being recruited for full scholarships to division one schools so that was great for me because that would bring those scouts 
to our games and then hopefully then it was up to me then it was now you need to get yourself noticed by playing above and beyond what you think you can play and when we continue more of the life of tony mandarich in his own words here on our american story get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter we continue here with our American story and the story of Tony Mandarich, who went from being one of the all-time great draft picks to, well, bust town. And his life story, well, it's instructive on so many levels and so compelling. Let's return to Tony Mandarich in his own words about his own American story. Pieces fell into place and I ended up getting a scholarship offered at Michigan State. Uh, Nick Saban was the was a defensive back coach at Michigan State at the time, and he and Ohio was his area. So when you know, after several meetings with with Coach Saban, when I was being recruited out of Kent Roosevelt, I ended up signing with uh, Michigan State, and that was uh, their offensive line was uh, juniors going into their senior year, most of their starters. So coming in as a freshman, the chances of starting are pretty low. Um, but if you get a year of experience under your belt by getting redshirted by the second year, you know, with all those guys graduating, the job's up for anybody, all those jobs. So that was like a major decision for me on going there. Nick was a major decision. Um, the way he was, the way he was straightforward, there was no BS, there was no salesmanship in it. There was no sliminess about it. There was no, it was all straightforward this is what we got, this is what we can do for you, and this can potentially be the result if you put the work in. And I understand that language. And then, you know, the head coach was George Perlis, who, you know, was a four-time Super Bowl winner as a defensive coordinator at Pittsburgh in the 70s. So that was a major decision because of George. Um, I was like, if I want to get to that level, here's a guy that's got four Super Bowl rings recently. And he's going to be able to call a spade a spade and say, look, Tony, you just ain't got it. You just don't have what it takes. And, you know, and there's nothing you can do as far as working at it that will make it better because you just don't have the athletic ability. You know, he's the type of guy that would say that to you. And he wouldn't say it to you in a malicious way. He'd say it to you in an honest way. And if he did think you had ability, he'd say, you know what, you do have ability, but you have a lot of work to do. So, you know, you you get there for camp, and once you got through camp, um, you know, you pick a roommate, and I had a great roommate, a great guy, still, you know, still keep in contact with him, John Buddy. And so I kind of did what I did when I was 11. I pulled out that piece of paper and started writing the goals for the next five, four to five years. And, you know, I wanted to become a starter, uh, then I wanted to become all Big Ten. Then I wanted to become All American, and then I wanted to be the first player taken in the draft. 
And my roommate, whose brother at the time was playing for the Kansas City Chiefs, um, and his dad had played for the Kansas City Chiefs, and I mean, iconic family as far as football in Kansas City, and just phenomenal people. He was like, what do you know, what do you writing or what are you doing i said just writing my goals down and i only known this guy for two three weeks he wanted to read them so usually that's something i would not share with anybody um so i let him read them and and you could see his face expression change <laughs> as he got to the latter part of the list because that's where it was like become the first player taken become all american then first player taken in the draft and um he was like first player taken in the draft he's like there's only one a year and i said i know i said why not it be me and you know that phrase of why not me became a very common phrase in my life in my head in my vocabulary uh, if you will so you know every decision i made i would ask myself you know is this get me closer to my goal or is this a distraction um, but I was very careful on the decisions I made. And then if I saw like, uh, oh, how would I describe it? An unstable crowd of people. Um, I, I had a choice to say, you know what? This is going to escalate probably at some point tonight. And do I really want to be around this? And chance losing my scholarship and by getting involved with, you know, my ego not backing down from somebody because I, I might have more to lose than they do. You know, the five years I was at Michigan State, I chose to use steroids. Um, not the best decision in the world. Uh, it was against NCAA rules, yet I still chose to use them because my gut feeling was that to make it to the next level at my position, uh, you pretty much have to use steroids and that's not true although I believed it um, that was something that a, a topic that I would not want to discuss with teammates or anybody because I knew it was wrong um, and I thought it through and I thought about the worst potential thing that could happen and I was like no I'm still willing to pay the consequence if that happens because I felt that if I didn't do it I wouldn't be giving it my all you know, and, and did I cheat on drug tests? Yes, I did in college to pass drug tests. You know, I was introduced to it um, by my brother. Um, you know, I thought about it for months. And then, and that's where that desire to become the greatest outweighed the desire of getting caught. There was obviously suspicions, but then there was obviously phrases like yeah but do you see how he works out yeah but do you see that he's here before other people work out and then he does the workout that is mandatory and then goes above and beyond and does his own workout you know yeah do you see that he stays here later than when everybody when they leave because he's you know doing film work or trying to get better at something so you know if steroids were the only thing that had made me an All-American, uh, All-Big Ten lineman of the year twice, you know, All-American twice, uh, you know, finishing in the running for the Outland Trophy, finishing in the running for the Heisman Trophy, 
um, being drafted second overall. If steroids were the only factor, then wouldn't most people have that kind of result? And I think there's a certain, you know, naiveness in society that you just take them and stuff happens. <laughs> well, you, you can take them and do nothing and nothing will happen. Um, you have to do the work. You have to do the work regardless whether you're taking them or not. You have to do the work and you have to do it at a level that's higher than you ever thought you could do it. And you have to do it day in and day out. And there's not many people that are willing to do that type of work in society for any career. Green Bay Packers will make it official. Ron, tackle Tony Mandarich, Michigan State. Next up, Detroit Lions. There was no doubt about that one. Well, when I, you know, when I left college, I had stopped taking the steroids because I knew the NFL's testing system was uh, much more sophisticated than college. And and there was enough rumors going around about the steroids in my name that I was like, you know what, I need to disassociate myself with that and kind of get away from it. So I did, but almost immediately within a week, I had kind of, you know, filled that void with, you know, painkillers. I was like, all of a sudden painkillers became, I noticed when I took painkillers, a lot of the problems weren't as big as they were before I would swallow those seven or eight painkillers. And the alcohol came into play fairly heavily when it was difficult to get the prescriptions because the demand for the prescription was, you know, you can't fill a narcotic too early. So then you try to get multiple doctors writing multiple scripts to different pharmacies and and it becomes a full-time job. <laughs> you know, it consumes your life. You know, it was... Um, before I got sober, uh, and even going into the last three years of my drinking and drugging, I had been kicked out of Green Bay in '92. I didn't get sober till I was in March, till March 23rd of '95. And after leaving Green Bay, I thought it can't get worse. And you've been listening to Tony Mandarich, and boy, this is real and this is raw. And you're thinking, my goodness, how could a guy have blown it? How could he have made that decision? But folks, we've all been there. And so many of us in our lives, friends, families, even, let's face it, we all have done it, done some things we shouldn't have done, and boy, did Mandarich pay a price. But when we come back, you're going to hear a flip side of this story, a redemptive side of this story, a remarkable story, uh, and it's Tony Mandarich's. And by the way, again, share your stories with us about local heroes, local legends, and the truth, too, about everything and about yourself. We love real stories. None is more real than this one. Fame, fortune, dreams, and breaking the rules to achieve them and the consequences of such things. Tony Mandarich's real-life story, a beautiful and redemptive story you'll hear when we continue here on Our American Story. more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. You're listening to Tony Mandarich. And my goodness, you've heard the story of how he got into the NFL, into the Green Bay Packers, and in the end, well, he had to stop doing the steroids. He knew he'd get busted. And what he replaced it with was opioids and ultimately alcohol. And boy, there's a lot of pain involved in the NFL, especially training and training through the pain. And so now he was an addict of a different sort. Let's return to Tony Mandarich and his story. After leaving Green Bay, I thought it can't get worse. And then two months later, my brother had passed away from terminal skin cancer. And nine to 12 months later, after my brother passes away, my parents get divorced after, you know, 40 plus years of marriage. After everything they've gone through, escaping from communist countries, um, coming to Canada with no money and not knowing how to speak English and making it. That foundation was gone. And your hero and your mentor, my brother, was gone. And I was, I guess it'd be an understatement to say that I felt like an epic fail um, was right there in front of me. And, you know, things kept getting worse. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to stop saying things can't get worse because every time I say it, something bad happens. But it, it, it stayed bad for another year. And then, you know, what changed it for me was, you know, there was a conversation with a good friend of mine that was kind of like the final catalyst that made me make a decision on um, putting myself in treatment. But really boiling it down to what it really was, it was emotional pain. Uh, it was the uh, the pain of guilt, the pain of shame, uh, the pain of letting people down, um, all those things uh, had become greater than the desire to get high. It, it was consuming the desire to get high. It had overwhelmed that. You know, getting high at one time was a solution and it felt good. But at some point, that solution became the problem. And then you get yourself in a situation where you know you can't live with it and you can't live without it. And that's a tough one because it's a catch-22 and how do, where do I go from here? And, and you're a hamster on a hamster wheel. And all I needed then was that catalyst of that friend of mine reminding me that if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to die. And I was ready to hear it, and I was like, okay, what can we do about it? Because everything I've tried and every way I've tried to stop has failed. Um, and I'm not sure that it's in it for me. I'm not sure that I'm supposed to get sober. And I never, ever was mad at God. I believed God the whole, in, in God the whole time. Uh, I was never mad at God. Why, you know, why me? I didn't, I never internally i never played a victim poor pitiful me it was like no you're call a spade a spade even when i was messed up i was like you call a spade a spade say what it is you're a drug addict i went into treatment in a treatment center in detroit you know i always remember day five and day 11 out of the 17 days are the two days i remember the most because they were the most impactful day five we had a meeting with a counselor with like eight patients that were inpatient, me being one of them. And she said, before we start the meeting, 
she said, I just want you all to take into consideration that your best thinking and your best plans in life got you here. And that was a Louisville slugger hitting me in the face. I was like, wow, she's right. And at that time, every decision I made in my life brought me to that moment sitting in that treatment center outside of Detroit. And I thought, God, I could have picked California or something nice. You know, I'm here in Detroit, <laughs> you know. And uh, and then at day, day 11, um, I started laughing again. And I didn't think that that would happen. Uh, not really in a genuine fashion. I, I thought that the fun was pretty much over for the most part. But I'd rather live a boring, sober life was better than living a miserable drinking and drugging life. I started laughing again just from us patients sharing stories amongst each other and some of the nonsense that we had done and you could relate to the guy that worked for the municipality that was running a backhoe digging ditches in Detroit. You could totally relate to what he was saying and here I was a pro football player. And I understood exactly what he was saying, and I understood exactly about his craving of he couldn't wait to get off of work and get home and, you know, pop some pills and drink some alcohol or get to the bar, or whatever the, I could relate. And there was politicians in there, there was tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, men, women, black, white, Asian, any culture you could think. It, the disease did not discriminate. It, it took people's lives. But we all shared a very, very uh, common thing, and it was the majority of the people's stories we could relate to. You take away a few things that have to do with uh, a job circumstance or whatever, or what role they played in their, their community or society, and you remove that, 80% of the rest of that person you can relate to 100%. Uh, and feel their pain and feel their relief and feel everything that they've gone through and you're like gosh there's you mean there's other people out there that feel this way and have gone through this um, and are going through this uh, because I thought I was unique and I was the only one when we would laugh at that stuff and I remember on day 11 sitting on my on my bed in the treatment center and my stomach was hurting from laughing and that was the first that was probably the first time in 10 years that my stomach had hurt from laughing and I thought it, you know total opposite of what I thought would ever happen I forgot all about that feeling of what that felt like and, I, and then my next thought was, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what's happening here, but whatever it is, I'm digging my nails into it and I'm not letting go. And then six, seven days later, I had uh, left treatment. It was a 30 day program. I stayed 17. Um, I was paying out of pocket and I was running out of money. And, uh, you know, they said, you know we want you to stay 30 and I said well if you're willing to pick up the tab I'll stay 30 and of course you know they're running a business too um, and I understand and and I and I was like uh, you know I feel that I get it I get it it's pretty crystal clear and um, and I'm sure that 
a lot of people say that to you guys and then two days later they're back out using i said but i i get it and i know it's only been 17 days but these instructions that you're that you've given me for when i do leave to do these things i've already started making calls to do these things and preparing you know when i did the statistics of x amount of people percentages will stay sober for you know one week or less after they leave treatment and 30 days and less six months less and a year or less um we're staggering and and then you know it's like less than one percent of the people will stay sober the rest of their life and you've been listening to tony mandarich and my goodness the pain the guilt and the shame were overwhelming and overwhelmed the desire to get high. Tony Mandarich was ready to change his life. And we know people in this struggle right now. You know them in your family. And my goodness, this gives anyone hope in a tough situation. When we come back, we're going to continue hearing from Tony Mandarich. And we thank him right now. And I'll remind myself to do this through the piece. That it takes a lot of guts to come out and, and just really lay your life out on the line for everyone to hear it and see it. So just thanks to Tony for, for doing that. And when we come back, we're going to continue his story, Tony Mandarich's remarkable story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and Tony Mandarich's story. Let's pick up where we last left off. When I did the statistics of X amount of people, percentages will stay sober. We're staggering and, you know, it's like less than 1% of the people will stay sober the rest of their life. And for me, that inner voice said, why not me? I mean, why not? Why not me be the one that does that? They need they need to fill a percentage, so I'll fill that percent. And um, and I've you know been sober ever since. I think in the first five years I was well, I know the first five years I was sober, I averaged a minimum of a meeting a day, um, a twelve step meeting. If and there were some days I'd go to two. Um, and it wasn't like. I'd go to them because I felt like I was going to drink that day. It was like I was going to them to grow as a person, uh, even sober. You know, you don't become a saint just because you get sober. Um, and when I left treatment, I had no intention, zero intention of going back to play. I was so happy to be sober because I thought that was impossible. I was so happy to be sober and actually laughing again. But man, when fall time hit and that weather hit and that was football weather, I was like, oh man, it's like, <laughs> I should be I'm still young enough. I, sh I could still play. And, uh, and that desire started to come back and I started working out again and, you know, no, you know, steroids, no nothing and was getting stronger and everything was falling into place. And, 
I thought, you know, I could try to make some rights out of the wrongs that I had done. Um, there were some wrongs that I had done that were just not capable of making right because they were, they were just so wrong and damaging. But I thought, it, at least go make an attempt to go back if somebody even gives you a chance and kind of keep your mouth shut, earn your, earn your money for a change and give that organization, whichever organization that may be, everything you've got, leave nothing on the plate. And um, I was lucky enough to get that chance with Indy and, and I had made crystal clear with them that, that they knew the whole story and I told them everything, I told them the truth. And I said, so really what you're getting is damaged goods and you're taking a chance and why should a team take a chance on me um and i thought you know and i and i thought to myself you know why should a team take a chance on me uh because chances are i wouldn't because i knew once you i get a chance now i have a chance to make it just and just because they sign you doesn't mean you make it but it's a step closer and i know that if sobriety was impossible and it happened and I'm happy that football was a detail because I already knew how to get there I just had to do it without the steroids and I knew that was possible I knew the training techniques I knew the fundamentals I knew the foot speed thing I've been doing it my whole life and I just had to start catching up because I was three years out of the league and even at 28 years old, you're starting to get on the middle to latter part of a career. Um, but I had played four and then been out three and, you know, abusing my body with chemicals. So, uh, and, and, you know, at the end of three years of Indy, it was time to retire because my shoulder had just took a beating. Going into it, I looked at more of it like just kind of make some amends, quiet amends, make some things right that were wrong, slay some de internal demons, and prove to yourself you can play without the use of steroids. And those things happened, and, but the, in the bigger scheme of things, and looking at the story and my whole story, that is a crucial, crucial element to the story that confirms and reiterates and uh, that uh, you know sobriety works and do things the right way and you don't even have to be have a drug problem or alcohol just do things the right way the first time so you don't have to go back if you ever get the opportunity to go back in anything in school anything there's a much easier way to live so when I had retired in 98 1998 from Indianapolis because of my shoulder injury I kind of took well, I, I was going to, for, I forced myself to take a month off of really not doing anything or looking for any kind of a job and just to kind of, you know, deprogram and just kind of take a breath because it seemed like it had been go, go, go since I walked into that treatment center. And, you know, that lasted about a week. And then I just pulled out a piece of paper <laughs> and asked myself, if I could be anywhere, live anywhere, and do anything, where would it be and what would it be? The answers were either Southern California, Arizona, or Nevada. And uh, 
So really the answer on paper was to move to Arizona and to become a professional photographer, which to me means you're, that's what you're doing to make a living. And, and that's what I did. And, uh, you know, you go from a, a multiple six-figure salary, you leave that multiple six-figure salary, and you make $38,000 your next year doing what you love. And a lot of people would, will say that that's not the greatest move in the world. But the value of being able to sleep at night carried more value than the paycheck. And don't get me wrong, uh, paycheck is good. And to be able to sleep at night is good. Uh, but if it comes down to one or the other, I'd rather be able to sleep at night. But really, that's what I did. I followed what I loved to do. And then it was like, figure out a way to monetize it. And that's what I did. And there's been you know, great years of revenue and there's been not so great years of revenue with photography. But it's been in total relation to how much effort is put in by me. So, you know, it's fundamentals and it makes me think of people like Nick Saban and people like George Perlis and these coaches that have been, not just those two coaches, but many more that I haven't even mentioned that have influenced the rest of my life via the football field because of how they taught. And at that time when we were on the football field, little did we know that they were not only teaching us about football, but they were teaching us about life. I know that they knew it, but when you're you know, 19, 20 years old and you're bulletproof, it's, no, this is football coaching. And, um, and, that's, and they were football coaching, but you take those fundamentals and you can apply them to anything and you'll have success if you execute them. Um, that's why I think it's so important to share like that's everybody has a story and I think it's one of the most valuable things a person has is their story and a lot of people will say their story is insignificant and that's a bunch of BS because everybody has a story and everybody's story matters because the biggest key is the person that you're sharing or the people that you're sharing your story with if they can relate to your story and I know they will, you know, okay, they won't be able to relate to going to football camp for the most of, most part, 99% of them won't, but they'll be able to relate to 99% of the rest of my story because pain is pain, you know, emotional pain is emotional pain, whether you're, you know, uh, mom raising kids at home, which is probably the toughest job in the world, to construction worker, a pro athlete, uh, engineer, an architect, doctor, it doesn't matter what it is. Pain is pain. And I used to think I was unique, <laughs> which almost killed me. And that, that my pain um, would be unique or was greater than other people's pain until I got sober. And then I realized, you know what? You're no different than anybody. Everybody has hardships and um, not everybody pulls through hardships. So what's your, what's your decision? Do you want to pull through this? If you do, what's your motivation? And if you don't want to pull through this and kind of want to lay low and, you know, crawl in a cave and kind of hide and uh, live that kind of a life, that's an option too. Um, but that's not the way I was wired. Um, 
I was wired to try to make as much right of the wrongs that I had done and continue that, you know, the rest of your life. And what a story you've just heard. And we're talking about Tony Mandarich's story. His first five years, he was going to at least a meeting a day, he said, during rehab. He was trying to become a better person. And he had zero intention of going back to play professional football. And you don't know how hard that is, folks, to leave the league and then come back. But he did it, and he actually made his way into the starting lineup at the Indianapolis Colts. And a fact that wasn't revealed here that I happen to know personally from having read a lot about Tony Mandarich is during that ending part of that third season, he had acute shoulder pain. And there was a remedy. He could have taken painkillers. But he went up to his boss and he said, I've got to quit because my life is more important than football. And he did it. And not an easy call. And then he goes on to his new passion. And that, of course, was photography. And a huge cut in pay. But again, living the life he wanted to live. And by the way, what a remarkable thing the Indianapolis Colts did. You're getting damaged goods, he said to them. And you're going to have to take a chance on me. And in the end, we've got to take a chance on people, folks. And that's the heart of the country. And there are second chances. And there are third chances. And there is redemption. There's always the possibility for it. Tony Mandarich's story, a remarkable American story. Even though he was born in Canada, this was indeed an American story here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.